0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Before we start, Anthony, would you prefer me to call you Anthony, or uh, as my friend Andy Thomas, who is our mutual friend, uh, says, uh, the mooch, or uh, what would you prefer?
1: Well, Doctor, you can call me i've I've been called so much worse than those two things in my life that either of those things are fine with me. But you know what's funny about my life is no one's ever called me Tony for whatever reason. You know, I think it was uh, it was the insistence of my grandmother that I'd be called Anthony. so but you can call me anything, sir. i'm 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 comfortable being called anything. and thank you and thank you for having me on.
0: Oh no! Maybe I can call you Tony. Maybe that'll
1: be a change. <laughs> yeah, see that if you call me if you call me Tony, I probably won't respond because I've never been called. <laughs> one of those weird things in my life, you know. I've never been called Tony for some reason.
0: Well, we'll stick with Anthony. I I don't know uh, if you know much about me at all.
1: Well, well you no, mean I mean I do know about you because my team briefed me about you, and uh, they they briefed me about the. Uh, The book that you wrote and uh, your life, they also told me that you're a Sagittarius. I don't know if that's true or not. (laughs) That Uh, is true, but that's
0: that's a bit of information that has never uh, popped up.
1: I don't know if you remember uh, Dr. Kelly, who used to work at the the neurosurgeon that worked at the Mayo Clinic, that was uh, one of the pioneers in the stereotactical surgery. Um, He operated on my father, who had a uh, meningioma. Uh, Dr. Kelly had moved from the Mayo Clinic to NYU Hospital. And maybe uh, my father's now deceased, unfortunately, but he, he lived 21 years after that surgery. Um, and then we had to give him the cyber knife um, because he oh, had oh, really? unfortunately the, uh, the tumor was Re- on. recurrence. It was, it was bicameral. Yeah, it was uh, it, on the sagittal sinus,
0: probably. And uh, there's always a little, or can be residual there. With a know, recurrence and that's rate. exactly
1: what happened. So we hit it with the cyber knife, um, and uh, so you know, I know you also are part of Accuray and so on and so forth. So I did my homework, sir. I did my homework. Oh well, uh, <laughs> so you may be wondering why I wanted to speak with you. Uh well, that was one of my questions. But you know what, I uh, you know someone of your esteem and who you are, I was very happy to accept the invitation. Well, that's very kind of you, and I
0: I appreciate that, Anthony. Uh, You've had, actually, an extraordinary career, a very illustrious career, and, uh, I mean, seemingly you started uh, from nothing and uh, uh, have built this uh, amazing background, which, of course, uh, I don't have to tell you, has had some controversial parts, uh, whether due to you or to external events that seem to affect us sometimes in ways that aren't pleasant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe one of the things we could talk about is coming from your background, sort of what drove you to uh, be where you are today? Because, you know, who we are today for many people is basically uh, fundamental of our past. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so maybe you could just give us a few insights into uh, how you got to where you're well, at today. You know,
1: I'll say a couple of things, but i'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat them because I think what happens is uh, we have a tendency to sometimes remember things the way we need to as opposed to the way they actually happened. And so, as we get older, you know, we want to purify our narrative. You know, Winston Churchill, Uh, When writing about Randolph Churchill, he glorified him. Uh, Yet, when you really read the history of his experience with his father, it was quite rough. And so, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I was always impressed with about uh, President Clinton, when he wrote his memoirs, uh, he was supposed to be named uh, William Jefferson Blythe. Unfortunately, his father died of a drunk driving accident before he was born. He was raised by his mom and Roger Clinton, and he took on the name of Roger Clinton and became William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, but there was a lot of violence in the house. And, uh, you know, he had to step in at a 14, 15-year-old age to protect his mother from uh, his stepfather's violence. And so, you know, when you grow up in dysfunctional families, what ends up happening is one or two of those people are like, OK, I'm going to launder the family. I'm going to go out there and uh, be the uh, superhero of the family, try to clean up on aisle seven. You know, the pickle jar dropped <laughs> and you're going to clean up on aisle seven. So... Um, I mean, it'd just be very candid because I think it, it, it's more valuable to you and more valuable to the magic shop. Um, my father, uh, who I loved, um, was a very complicated guy. He had grown up in a very poor area of northeastern uh, Pennsylvania, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He was born in Plains Hospital in 1935. Uh, there was no hot water in the house until he was about 12 years old. Uh, his his older brother, a uh, family of seven. The older brother was coming out of the U.S. Army, decorated war veteran, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was 12 years older than my father. He came back uh, to Plains, Pennsylvania with some money, and he bought and installed a hot water heater in my dad's house. So I was trying to give you a sense for it. If you went to Zillow today, and we did a Zestimate of my father's house in Plains, PA, the Zestimate today is $34,000. So again, just wanna give a sense for the type of poverty that they grew up in. Because you said something interesting when you introduced me that I grew up with nothing or came from nothing. I actually didn't because my father resoundingly put us in the middle class. He was a very hard worker. Uh, He left his high school at age 17, drove out here to Long Island to follow his older brother who, who told my dad, hey, don't stay here and work in these coal mines. You can mine sand out on Long Island, it's outdoors. We're using cranes and payloaders and we're shipping the sand to these cement mix factories to make the New York City skyscrapers come out to Long Island and mine sand. And so in 1953, he got there. So why am I laying this foundation for you? Because I came from a very poor family. My father was hell-bent on making sure that we were not poor. But he was not educated, so he operated a crane for 41 years out here on Long Island. And he had a very high hourly wage. Now, this is a byproduct of the post-World War II era, a byproduct of great industrialization during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so we lived in a middle-class house, purchased for $16,000 in 1972 in the town of Port Washington, which had wealthy people in it, blue collar people, a blend, but the school system was fantastic. And so I'm the beneficiary of a really good public school system. And then there was an Italian, my parents are very Italian. My mother and father uh, are first generation Italians, um, and they spoke Italian in the house. And I, again, got lucky. My guidance counselor his name was Mr. Zanetti. He passed a few years ago. He went to go see my parents, said in Italian, "You got he's, he's going to get into this Tufts University for sports. He's got good SAT scores. You want to send him to Binghamton because it was a lot cheaper. That was the state university. And he told my father in Italian, don't, don't do that. Uh, he's very smart. He's gregarious. If you send him to the private school, it's going to cost way more money. And if you send him to that private school, he'll do better and it'll have a better career track. And so my father didn't know. He was uneducated. And so Mr. Zanetti left the house after two double espressos And my father said, hey, you're going to Tufts. I said, OK, what is that? He said, well, it's T-O-U-G-H-S. He didn't know. OK, and so then I, I took the barons out. I said, oh, no, it's T-U-F-T-S. And I said, OK. And I, And I applied to Tufts. I got into Tufts but we didn't have the money for it. So my dad, uh, he did something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. He cashed, he cashed in his life insurance policy. He, he, he had a maybe a $10,000 cash value on the life insurance policy. And so it was April of 1982, he handed me this check. Um, I was working at my mother's brother, my uncle's motorcycle shop. He handed me a check for $10,000 and said to me, you know, this is what I have. It's $24,000 to go to that school. We don't really have the money, but here's $10,000. Let's get through the first six months, and then we'll figure it out together. And so probably very long-winded, but, you know, because I think you believe this, you are nature and nurture. You come into the world with certain proclivities, IQ maybe, and certain design uh, from the universe. But then you're nurtured by your family and some of the nurturing is great and some of the nurturing sucks, you know. And so that was the good parts of my dad. The bad parts were he was a very tough guy. He was violent, Um, used to beat the daylights out of us. He would also, you know, was fairly aggressive with my mom. And so when you see that as a kid, it does alter your universe, okay. You can go in a lot of different directions. My brother has been cycling in out of cocaine for the last 40 years. Uh, I made a decision that I was going to convert all of that energy into workaholism, right? There are different types of uh, aholisms. And so you asked me what motivated me. What motivated me was there was great financial anxiety in the house. The house was dysfunctional. Uh, The parents were Catholic. So, you know, old school Catholics, they don't get divorced. Uh, My parents... uh, my father died this year my my parents were married 67 years and they put probably 500 years of fighting into a 67 year marriage and so you know there's you know i used to tell my brother you know there's a, there's a motto for our family let's put the word fun back in the word dysfunctional so there were great things about that upbringing and i can tell you again the generosity of him handing me that check the self sacrifice of his very hard work ethic and then there were really bad things you know we we were overly financially anxious we probably didn't need to be that much you know it motivated me to get a paper route when i was age 11. um i was selling uh i mean i did all kinds of stuff i was selling mopeds when i was age 13 at my uncle's motorcycle shop i had a paper route for long island Newsday. uh at after i did my homework i used to go to mr campanelli's uh local uh supermarket key food and i would stock the shelves from seven to nine o'clock at night And clock in, you know, I guess it was like 3 or $4 an hour. And I was always making money, always making money. Um, And then when I got to Tufts, I had to make money. And so I I was delivering pizzas, delivering, you know, I delivered the New York Times to my fellow co-eds and made money uh, dropping papers off at 7 o'clock in the morning in the dorm rooms of people that were subscribing to the Times. I, I needed the money, you know. And so... I had this motivation. I also knew that my parents were frankly going to run out of money. Uh, My dad's last paycheck, I think in the year 2000, when he retired, was like $37,000. And you could do the math, but there was no way. This is the big dilemma, by the way, Dr. Dodia, for the United States right now. We've turned aspirational working class families, which was my family, you know, living the American dream. One kid will end up going to college. I ended up going to uh, Tufts and Harvard, um, but we turn those families, those working-class aspirational families into economically desperational. You see what happened? And so, you know, I'm probably being too long-winded, sir, but I'm just trying to lay out the framework for you. So I grew up with social anxiety, some domestic violence, uh, very dysfunctional, you know, not poor, definitely in the middle class. I would never dishonor my dad by telling you I grew up poor. But I was extremely motivated to get out of that. Now I'll tell you something else. You know I don't fit the bill for Wall Street. You know when I got to my first job interview, I was wearing a hundred percent polyester. Okay, I had a polyester suit on, I had a polyester tie, I had a polyester shirt. I mean, I looked like a young Guido uh, Undertaker. You know, and I got to the interview. Uh, the partner at Goldman Sachs is a very sweet guy. He's like, "Look, you're super smart, but dude." I can't bring you down to Goldman Sachs dressed like this, you know. I mean, I was fully flammable for my first investment banking interview, you know, all petroleum products, right? So I had to go from that middle-class blue-collar experience, never inside an office building. N- none of the family ever went to college, let alone law school. Uh, no country club. Never swung a golf club. Never swung a tennis racket. And I had to figure it out, and I didn't fit in. I'm not going to bullshit you and tell you that I fit in. And so, you know, I'm at Goldman trying to make money. I said, this is the best way to meet these people is to go into politics. That's how I ended up in politics. Anyway, long-winded answer, but you asked, so I'm giving you a framework for how I got motivated.
0: Let, let, let me ask you a question, because you did bring up this reality, and it's sort of been interesting because... On the one hand, and I'm sure with you, uh, they've said it, and they've said it with me. They go, "Well, you're you're an example of the American dream," and my statement has been, "I'm a one in a million, and uh, it's unfair to make a comparison that by using me as an example, that that is the typical situation because it's not at all. Mm-hmm. And I think over the last forty or fifty years, because of the extractive uh, nature of what went from capitalism to what I call ruthless capitalism has decimated the middle class. No question. And and, uh, uh, it's almost impossible. And it's fascinating because, as you said yourself, your family was able to be, quote unquote, middle class without education, but who worked hard. And I don't believe that's even possible, especially in the context of a lot of states having a minimum wage versus a living wage, and uh, unfortunately, what seems to be selling out America uh, to corporate interests.
1: Uh, Could you give me your thoughts on that? Well, sir, not not only do I agree with you, I can provide more evidence, and I can tell you something that, you know, I think people... It's interesting, you know. I was just met with uh, Saul Katz, who was given several hundred million dollars to the local hospital here. He Used to own the New York Mets. Just had lunch with him, and uh, we were talking about this very issue. Um, you know, you work for Donald Trump. Some of the people hate you. If you leave Donald Trump and you denounce him, then there's a whole other group of people hate you. You know, my 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 oldest son says, "Dad, you're just killing my networking opportunities. Okay, because all these people hate <laughs> you. They don't even know who the hell you are, but they all hate you." I said, well, you know, maybe I'm getting closer to the truth, but here's something I will tell you, and people are not going to like this, but, you know, President Trump saw it. Candidate Trump saw it. I did 71 campaign stops with him. I descended into New Mexico with him on the first one, and I'm a curious person, and so I took my Secret Service security pin off, put it in my pocket, crossed the perimeter, went into the crowd, and said, you know, why are you here? And then I realized, Dr. Doty, that I was talking to my dad, you know, my dad was born in 1935 these were people that were born in 1965 or 75 and this one young gentleman said to me well you know my dad worked at this factory he was there 30 years so he's got a pension he's retired but they laid me off i was only there for 12 years and now i'm struggling i'm working at lowe's and i'm working at uh, domino's pizza and he says oh by the way anthony you think you're in new mexico well let me tell you where new new mexico is that would be mexico Because that's where my factory moved, and you know this, and probably your listeners know this, but it's worth repeating, 65,000 factories moved offshore of the United States since the signing of NAFTA. And so, again, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just being economically observational. If we want to blame the Republicans or the Democrats or blame them both, whatever, we made these decisions and we left a very large group of people out of the system, and they're upset, sir. They they don't like where they are. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, I told Mr. Trump on the pl- campaign plane back from that trip that I, on the internet that night, I priced my dad's 1976 wages. And then I looked up on the web what the 2016 wages were 40 years later for the same job. And I told Mr. Trump that my dad's real wages were down 26%. So even though the nominal number went up, you couldn't have a 1,100-square-foot house with one working bathroom for five people. You were going into the poverty line, even though you had the exact same job working the exact same amount of time. And so we're smarter than this. We are definitely smarter than this. But we've lost our way because of what you said, this ruthless capitalism. Henry Ford was a SOB. But Henry Ford said, you know what? I'm going to pay my workers enough money so they can afford the product that they're producing— I'm gonna make sure that they're in a single family house with a good school system and give them some aspiration because when I'm eating caviar and drinking champagne in my Dearborn, Michigan house, I don't want them coming up there with tiki torches and machetes. I just don't want that, okay? And so, you know, we're here now. Um, People are looking up the fall of Rome for a reason because when you disconnect, from the common man, or what Roosevelt called the forgotten man, when you disconnect from that person, that man or woman, you're losing the spirit and the design of the country. You're losing it. And so I watched the debate the other night, the Republicans all, you know, mishmash of regurgitation of talking points. I watched President Biden, He's obviously a nice guy. I voted for him because you can't have Trump destroying the democracy, but he's not the right guy for that job. You know, we're we're now choosing between demented and dementia. And dementia is probably a better choice than demented because demented will destroy the democracy, right? And also, demented is probably on the way to dementia. But we shouldn't be doing this in a country like this. You know, this was what Lincoln said, the last best hope for mankind. Uh, Roosevelt understood the country. He understood the vision for the country. Uh, One of the masterpiece pieces of legislation for Roosevelt was not just a safety net for the elderly, uh, but it was the GI Bill. You know, he took kids that were poor Jews, poor Irishmen, poor Italians, poor wasps, whatever, from all sects of life, and they got college educated. So you had kids from East New York that were growing up in the ghetto and they became accountants, or they became lawyers, or they became doctors. And it transformed a forward generation of their families. And we're not we're not thinking like that anymore. We've now decided that, you know, there's a group of corporations that are gonna pay the politicians to legislate the laws that they want. We've now decided that we're gonna gerrymander our opponents and adversaries out of our district. So are you in a real democracy, Dr. Doty, if the candidates are picking the voters? I thought the, I thought the voters were supposed to pick the candidates. Well, if, you know, you know you're I mean? exactly right. So, so, so we're really in trouble, actually. And then we got a bunch of bozos that don't want to identify it, or they're afraid to identify it because they know the corporate interests will character assassinate them. The minute they start telling the truth to the American people.
0: No, I, I mean, this is the horribly uh, sad reality. Now, getting back to Trump and uh, Biden, I would say, uh, uh, and I personally like Biden on multiple levels, but as you obviously know, he is not charismatic. And, uh, but you know, if you look at the economy and many of the things he's done, I would say that's on the plus side versus uh, every effort to destroy what was there before is probably on the negative side. But that being said, why do you think it is, and I have my own opinions, which I'm happy to share with you, but why do you think it is that corporate interests, wealthy individuals, the billionaire class are so motivated to destroy America? And I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of feedback, (laughs) negative feedback from this, uh, but it's fact. I mean, it seems as though there is never enough. And in fact, I, I, you know, you look at Davos as an example, and I always say, whenever somebody is fearful of getting their privilege taken away, they create a narrative of oppression. As an example, we seem to have all of this legislation which gives businesses who screw up charity, yet if you're an average person and you screw up, you crash and burn. And this is like built into the system repeatedly, and it, it people keep somehow mistaking that the corporate interest or the billionaire class, because of their position, are going to do the right thing. But there is every bit of evidence over and over again that that is the exact opposite of how they act.
1: Okay. Very, very, very g- great observation. So let me add a few things to that. So... That has been the case for all of mankind, by the way, what you just said. And so what happens is there's some wise people, men or women, and they say, okay, well, if we do that for too long, then there'll be an upheaval, there'll be a revolution. The, the people will be frustrated and they won't be able to eat and they can't eat cake like Marie Antoinette said or whatever. And so the very uh, famous statesman Solon, S-O-L-O-N, believed that he had to go to his fellow aristocrats in Athens and create the com- the concept of democracy, the government of the people, and he said, "Listen, if we don't start empowering them with some decision-making, they're going to come here and they're going to burn down our villas, and we have to do that." And so he set that up, okay? And it worked, and obviously they went on and they had great success, and of course they unfortunately fought with Sparta, but why am I saying that? The What Churchill would say about the democracy, it's an absolutely horrific form of government until you consider all the other forms of government, okay? And so so that worked. And when it's really worked, you've had people in leadership that are like, okay, I'm going to take care of the little guy, you know? Uh, uh, Truman said, there are no lobbyists in this town for the middle class except for me. Don't worry, I'm going to be your lobbyist, okay? Roosevelt said— If you don't take care of the forgotten man, we're going to lose the democracy, okay? His fellow aristocrats called him, and you know this, a traitor to his class, a traitor to his class. But Roosevelt responded with, no, idiots, I'm trying to save you because you have 10 bathrooms. If you have nine bathrooms and the guy on the street has one bathroom, we're not going to have a revolution, okay? Henry Ford understood this, even though he was a maniacal, ruthless guy. And so what's happened now is we've grown disinterested to each other. And you know this. I mean, you know you know what Dunbar's number is, right? I mean, we, sure. we are now living Dunbar's number. And for your viewers and listeners, just to repeat what it is, this is notion that there exists a cognitive limit to the number of people that we can empathize with or interact with, evolutionary forces that got us to where we are dictates that that number is roughly 150 people. And that's roughly the tribe or the small town or the village or the mini city state that we developed to civilize ourselves. And so now I've got this plastic bottle on my desk um, and I'm going to drink it. I'm going to throw it out. It's going to go in the landfill. And I'm like, well, what's the big deal? Right. But there's 6 billion people and they're all doing that. We're wrecking the environment. Right. So I'm stupid to have it on my desk, or I'm in my private jet burning the fossil fuel. What is the big deal? We can only relate to each other in this way. So therefore, you need transformational leadership. You need somebody that can explain to the people, say, hey, listen, this is not working, and we can fix it, but you have to understand why it's not working first, and then I can explain to you how to fix it. You know. And uh, it's totally fixable, by the way. And I'll just give you two ideas very quickly. And I'll start out by saying that we have 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, The country is approximately 247 years old. The Constitution ratified in 1789. So in 230 years, you've had 27 amendments. You're getting an amendment roughly seven or eight years the the founders understood this. You have to renew the social contract, but we have no social contract renewal uh, of any significance since 1965. So we had the Civil Rights Act, the 26th Amendment, and it was a renewal, but we haven't done it We had the procedural amendment in 93, big deal, but we need to amend the Constitution. We need two things immediately. Number one, we need to end the gerrymandering. If you don't end the gerrymandering, the fat tails of the society are going to run the society into the ground, and they're going to vote out. They're going to select out the voters that are their adversaries, and we'll have 500-year-old fossils, you know, in the Congress. And by the way, Diane Feinstein, lovely person, but Diane Feinstein, age 90, should not be dying in the Congress. Okay, we shouldn't turn the Congress into a nursing home, right?
0: Oh no, absolutely. And you know, it's fascinating you say that because I don't understand why. She didn't just retire five years ago, 10 years ago, and it's amazing how their ego gets entwined with this. You but, look but you at do know, uh,
1: sir, I, I'm going to push back on you. You do, <laughs> you do know because you've read Macbeth, you've read King Lear, and you are a cognitive expert and a neuroscientist, so you do know. And the, what would the founders say to that? The founders would say that we're not designed for power, we don't, we're not designed for it, we can't handle it. If you empowered me and made me the dictator of the United States. I'm probably going to do a good job for five years. Then my head's going to get filled with all kinds of nonsense. And Lord Acton's aphorism is going to prevail, that the power is going to corrupt. And then it's going to corrupt absolutely. And and Hamilton wrote about this. Hay wrote about this in the Federalist Papers. To protect the society from tyranny, we have to balance the power. We have to have checks and balances. And if we do that, we'll create a flatter system. And so the Scaramucci's or the Dodi's can rise from the ashes in a system like that. If you live in a dictatorship, guaranteed the first 10 years are usually pretty good. Okay, ask the Italians, Mussolini got the trains running on time. But then what happens is he gets filled with too much power. The cronyism kicks in. The crony, you want to talk about ruthless capitalism. How about crony ruthless capitalism, which is what we're experiencing right now? Okay, and so I'm going to explain to you what they did. Okay, under the auspices of capitalism, and this is why it has to be restructured again. But but you know you can't do that. Okay, and so the second thing you need is you have to revoke Citizens United. Oh,
0: absolutely. And so Citizens
1: United is a Supreme Court case where the court ruled. I think it was Scalia said you can use your money, and it's a it's a supplement for your free speech. And so, if you got a billion dollars and you want James Dodd to get elected president, you can form a PAC, put all billion dollars in it and spend your money that way. And he created separate but equal democracy. Okay, and this is identical to Plessy versus Ferguson, and not to give you a constitutional law lesson, but what did Plessy versus Ferguson say? Uh, the, the court ruled that you can have separate but equal facilities for blacks and whites, unmitigated disaster led to gross segregation, increase in violence, lynchings, et cetera. 80 years later, we had Brown versus the Board of Education to repeal the Plessy verdict. But the Citizens United has destroyed the country because I can show you, and I, don't, I didn't know what we were gonna be talking about today, but I have charts, I can show you the moment Citizens United went into effect, the corpocracy, the corporate welfare that you're mentioning, all of that increased. Aid to children, advocacy for middle and lower class people, that went down as a percentage of the budget. Feeding the banks during the financial crisis went up. Giving opportunity to Elon Musk, and you know, look, I like Elon, but I'm just saying, you know, they, the government subsidized both of his businesses to make him the richest person in the world,
0: and they're getting nothing back from it.
1: But by the way, they're mad at him now, right? Because he didn't respond to the. K-Karibda, he didn't he didn't respond to the world full of uh, connectivity, right? But but I'm just saying to you, like Citizens United destroyed the fabric of the democracy and created a separate but equal system. And the fat cats are buying off the politicians and they're getting the laws written for them to feed them. They're getting richer and richer and richer. And the middle and the lower class guys are getting crushed. And there's an indifference to it because the politician has figured out that they can stay in power. And let me just say one last thing. The, the Congress has a 14 percent approval rating. They're down to their paid staff and family members. Okay, They have the same approval rating as Kim Il-jong, the North Korean dictator. But they get reelected 97 percent of the time because they've rigged the system, sir. They've rigged the system so someone can stay in the Congress till age 90. I mean, I think Chuck Grassley from Iowa, I think he's, he's like George Washington's grandfather or some shit like that. I mean, guy's like 500 years old and they don't care and they're laughing at you and they're laughing at me. And so what happens is we grow indifferent. And I'll say this to you, there's 144 million people in one voting block. It's the most powerful voting block in the country. They vote the exact same way every election. 144 million people, they vote the exact same way. You know, who they are? the non-voters, sir, the non-voters, they don't show up for the election, and your elected leaders love that because they don't have to market themselves to them, and they're primarily moderate people that have grown cynical from the system. You see what's well, happening? You know, so yeah, so oh, if absolutely. we don't break this fever, you know, we're going to get... Way greater separations. We're going to have a very big upheaval in the country. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but my grandchildren probably are going to get hit with this thing, and it sucks.
0: No, I, I totally agree with you. You know the statement <coughs> you just made. It, it reminded me of how they market gym memberships. Right, ninety percent of the people sign up, but only five percent of the people use it. Right, and in some ways, you have this indifferent populace who have the power but they never utilize it because uh, they, it's not gonna help them or they believe it's not gonna help them or they've tried and it hasn't helped them. I don't know if you, did you see the study by Princeton where it looked at uh, political corruption and it, and it basically emphasized what you just said where fundamentally <clears throat> whether a majority of people want a law to pass or you don't care, the chance of that legislation passing is almost zero if you are a corporate uh, entity, a billionaire, or a special interest group, then there's about a 60 to 80% or even 90% chance that the legislation will pass. And this has been going on for at least 20 years. And I totally agree with you. Part of it is Citizens United, if not a large part of it. And then the other is this absurdity of gerrymandering, which as you probably saw, Alabama just got dinged on that, which they're very upset about. And then uh, is it is it Wisconsin or is it uh, I think it's Wisconsin where they're trying to gerrymander? Louisiana's trying to do it, and it's all to disempower uh, the poor and the minorities.
1: Well, they're both they both do it. You know, the Republicans do it, the Democrats do it. The Republicans had something in place called Operation Red Map. They looked at the demographics and said, okay, this is going to be really bad for us. So how do we go to the state legislatures and how do we get the state legislatures? We're going to funnel money to them, flip them to the side of Republicans so that they can redistrict for us. So even though we're the minority in terms of voter registration, we're going to be able to control the House with these techniques. And so here's something that happened, and I think this is important for people, is the tyranny of the minority. You see, what what Hamilton— and Hay and Madison and Jefferson. I mean, they fought like crazy, these men, but they agreed on certain principles. One of the things they wanted to do was protect the country from the tyranny of the majority because they knew that mobs with their psychic energy and the psychology of mass hysteria could go crazy. So they had to put checks in the system, which is why they created a republic and not a representative democracy, which is why the state of Rhode Island has two senators in the state of California, obviously 50 times larger, has two senators. And so they were worried about the tyranny of the majority. What the Republicans did said, oh, let's subvert this. And they created the tyranny of the minority. So you have four senators in North and South Dakota. The combined population is 1.2 million, slightly larger than the island of Manhattan, but you've got four senators. California and New York have four senators. You see what they did? And they and they said, OK, now we got to work the Electoral College. We could lose the popular vote by 8 to 10 million, but we could still win the Electoral College. The Electoral College was set up to check the tyranny of the majority, but they reversed engineered it and turned it into the tyranny of the minority. See what they did? Absolutely. And so this stuff has to be called out. It has to be stopped. Uh, and if it's not stopped, then you won't change the ideas of these parties. You know, the Republicans, they've decided that, you know, old white people should run the country. Well, wait a minute. There's a lot well, of black I,
0: I, I, I would say old white Christian
1: people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So old white Christian people should run the country. Oh, by the way, there are more black and brown people in the country now. And so if you look at it demographically, they may end up running the country. Well, then, you know what? We got to change the democracy. It's okay to have a democracy if we can have old white Christian people running the country. Oh no, we don't oh, they're in the minority now? Okay, let's change the rules then. You see see what they're doing? And that is so classically anti-American and is so viciously against the ideals and the principles that got us to where we are. You know, what did Franklin say? You you have a republic if you can keep it. There's a sacredness to the republic, but he understood that you had to trust the system. And if you trusted the system, more people would become prosperous in the system. If you don't want to trust the system, then you're going to get what you get. You're getting the crony capitalism, the ruthlessness, people currying favor, the corruption, and the distrust. Now, you know, Will and Ariel Durant, they wrote a 10-volume treatise on The, Roman the Empire. Story of Civilization. Yes. And, uh, you know, I read the entire thing, and my 31-year-old son, when he was about 19, said, well, why did you read it, and what did you learn? And I told him one sentence. you want to hear the sentence?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. Throughout history, people are dishonest, and governments are corrupt. That's what I learned. There's been a moment in history where a group of people recognizing that set up a flatter system of checks and balances to try to reduce the unfairness and to reduce the corruption. A result of which is unleashed this ridiculous economic force and economic prosperity for a very large swath of people that prior to Never experienced economic prosperity. You know, Dr. Doty, I come from a family. When my father died, I gave his eulogy. I, I said at the I said, listen, my, my daughter's a singer, she's in Europe, she had to apply for Italian citizenship. So I hired an attorney, and the Italian attorney said, Anthony, I can take your family back to 1810. Because of the Napoleonic Code, and many of them were born in the kingdom of Naples, I can take you back. I said, okay, do you want to know the avocations of your grandparents, great-grandparents, et cetera? I said, sure. So my father, crane operator, my, my grandfather, coal miner. Now we're going back. Peasant. Day farmer. Chicken coop keeper. Day worker. When we got to 1810, Dr. Doty, the death certificate read for Luigi Scaramucci, the destiny read, feudal farmer. Okay, so you know your history, I know my history. That means that my great-grandfather eight times back was a slave to someone that owned a farm, a nobleman that owned the farm in the kingdom of Naples, and he was working for shelter, and he was working for food. Fast forward 200 short years, one of his ancestors who carries his DNA, same so roughly the same intelligence, let's call it, goes to Tufts, Harvard Law School, builds two businesses. I mean, I got my ass shot up pretty well in the White House, that's fine. But I've lived a pretty interesting life. Never could that life have been lived in Italy, formerly known as the Kingdom of Naples, or the area where my, my family's. So so for me, I try to explain to people, you, you, you gotta understand the sacredness of this place. And you gotta understand what it did for all of us, and you can't take it for granted. You know, and when you're putting a bozo like Trump, we know who Trump is now, right? I made well, a mistake. I think I, I
0: think we've known who he is. Well,
1: yes, but we we remember you only had two choices. If you were a Republican, you had two choices, Secretary Clinton or Donald Trump. I went with Donald Trump, I made a mistake. There are a lot of people say, Oh, well, you knew who the guy was. Okay. You know, this is what we do in the country. We only have two choices. I'm a lifelong Republican. I went with a Republican. Okay. I made a mistake. You know, and I, and I, and, 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 you know, I was with somebody today that said to me, you know, you can't make a bad guy do good things. You know, that is and I correct. made a mistake. And so I have to own that for the rest of my life. But you know what? If you've never made a mistake, throw a rock or stone at me. But if you have made one, have a little bit of empathy. I was trying to do the right thing. I love my country. I wanna help the country.
0: No, no, listen, I appreciate what you're saying. And this is one of the problems, right? I, I mean, people aren't forgiving necessarily. We have such a polarized, divided nation. And I think it's sort of the universal distastefulness of the way the situation is, but people don't see a clear cut way out. And you've made the analogy, you've got demented and dementia. Uh, uh and I'm not sure if I would use the same terminology, but whatever the case, you have two candidates in their seventies. Yeah, I mean,
1: I mean, doc, you got a soft spot for Biden, okay? I mean, because you're you're looking at the two, he's the least of the two evils, and you got a soft spot for the guy. It's fine, but he's not oh, the uh, right he's not the right okay, guy. No,
0: but I, I I'm not saying he is at all. My point what what I was gonna finish saying uh was that uh why are those our only two choices? Why don't we find people in their 50s their 60s oh, I can who are it. yeah yeah well, well let me let me just finish here but who are intelligent and i, I think just my own thoughts is one it, it's sort of fascinating the paradox between you see somebody like trump who has all of this baggage and nobody cares but then you see somebody who's a reasonable individual who may have a little taint on his uh, reputation and then gets destroyed because of it and that it's an interesting paradox, also people uh, get pulled over the coals or raked over the coals for anything, even though they want to do the right thing for the country. You know, uh, this may sound uh, strange, but I certainly look at a fellow like Buttigieg and whether he could get elected or not. But here's a thoughtful, uh, intelligent uh, individual who I think could offer great benefit. Could he be elected? Unclear. If not, no. Uh, but what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I don't think he can be elected because it's just is not that. This is not. It's not that you know. Remember, this is not a normative country. This is a, you know, it's a country. It's not what we want it to be. It's what it is. You know, could he be elected fifty years from now? Yeah, maybe. You know, but he couldn't be elected today. I mean, just being honest, okay. But but the problem is, is they crush the competition. Ross Perot scared the living daylights out of these people. He got nineteen point nine percent of the vote in ninety two. And they built a system and apparatus at the state and local government level and at the federal level to literally create these huge barriers to entry for a third-party candidate or for some third-party organism to get started and grow. Now, they're so weak now and they're so incompetent and they're so underserving the people that we're now seeing people crop up again and say, hey, maybe we can take a third party shot at this, but the duopoly of those two are laughing at those people because the obstacles that they put in place are currently insurmountable. You're going to get two people and those are going to be the two people and it doesn't matter. You could run, you know, The Rock, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or he can't run because he wasn't born here, but you could pick whoever you want as a third party. They'll never beat that system.
0: Now, that's right. What do you uh, think of Marianne Williamson?
1: If I I might ask. I love her. You know, I love her. I think she's in touch with her spirituality. I think she's a very smart person. I think she's connected into the kismet, the zeitgeist, the whatever it is, the ethereal thing that's going wrong right now. Okay. Because remember, we're a hive mind, whether we like it or not, and we're hive minding away from each other. And And she understands that. And she's trying to offer a solution to bring us back together. The amazing author, now deceased, Barbara Tuckman, wrote a book called The Guns of August. And she said, unfortunately, the dilemma for humans is that they, they forget the war. When the living memory of the war dies, you get a systemic rise in nationalism. And so she was writing about 1914, The Guns of August. The war started in August of 14, after the Archduke was assassinated. And, but the prior 99 years, we had a horrific war, Napoleonic Wars. They set up a treaty. They went to the Congress of Vienna, set up a treaty. Uh, the treaty actually worked. Okay, Von Metternich, who was uh, somebody that Kissinger always praises, understood the, how to balance the powers. And yes, there was a, a, a Franco-Germanic skirmish in 1848, but in general, Europe was at peace for roughly 100 years. That was the first time since Emperor Charlemagne entered the uh, equation that that happened and so what happened is all the living memory of the war went like this and all of the rise of nationalism went up and to the right and so then we had two bad wars we had a bad treaty after the first war then we had a ridiculous war and a genocide Uh, and so now the Europeans are like we got to stop this came together but the living memory of the war declined there are no living public servants that fought in that war or experienced the war as a civilian. All of that's out of the picture, and you're watching what Barbara Tuckman said happened happen again. We're pulling apart. We're becoming more nationalistic. We have bellicosity of rhetoric, we have a fervor for war. Uh, we are glorifying it. What did Rilke say, you know, the German writer? He said, my God, we glorified this war, and yet we've destroyed ourselves in this war, 40 million people dead in the First World War. You know, remark, all quiet on the Western front. The point is, is that when we destroy ourselves, we come together in the aftermath. And if we have this elongated time of peace and prosperity, we start to think of ourselves as independent from each other again, and we grow more nationalistic towards each other and we don't have anybody in leadership that's calling that out and explaining that to people and saying, hey, I'm just letting you know, let's observe 5,000 years. This is what works. And oh, by the way, this doesn't work. It's going to end up hurting you. So based
0: on what you're saying, do you think then that we are uh, headed towards uh, a war uh, of some type uh, just to follow okay, we're, the historical we're, okay, precedent? So we're in one. You we're mean between the right one. and the
1: left? Okay. We're in the war, so let me just repeat that. We're not heading for a war, we're in the war. The question is, is the war going to escalate and turn into a global nightmare? But we're already in the war, okay? Because, you know, this is like Lend-Lease in 1939 and 1940, you know, and, uh, you know, my my issue is your, 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 your incrementalism is not working for the Ukrainians. You either give them the equipment so that they can do the job, but what you're doing to them is you're, like, killing them slowly. You're incrementally giving them the equipment. They're doing enough of a job, but they're not able to finish the job. They don't have the equipment. Okay, but okay, but we don't want to overly engage the Russians. We are already there. Okay, you have to make a decision, and we don't do that, right? What did Churchill say? America always makes the right decision after we exhaust every other possibility, okay? But, sir, we're already in the war. To to, to not realize that, we dropped $70 $70 billion in that war, okay? And you know we're helping them fight that war. And you know the Chinese and the North Koreans are supporting the Russians, and the Iranians are supporting the Russians. So the, the people we don't like, our adversaries, are fighting us in a proxy war in Ukraine. So we're already at war. So now the question is, can we get to a peace before that war escalates? And my answer to that question is, of course we can, but we don't have the right politicians. We don't have the right leadership. We don't have people, anybody read the history of the Congress of Vienna and the von Metternich principles that Kissinger wrote about in five different books? Anybody read it? Anybody paying any attention? Anybody focused on what the vested interests are for the former Soviet Union and the Chinese and how they're directly against ours. But to fight an upfront war would be an unmitigated disaster for all of us. And so therefore, we can fight them, but we got to make it more economic.
0: Well, let me ask you a question because you bring up an interesting point. I mean, you're quoting uh, a variety of literature and history, but the average person has a uh, sixth or seventh grade reading level And their interests are not uh, beyond, uh, frankly, for many of them, their survival. So how do you educate the population then to make them understand what is at risk here? And is that, do you have to have a charismatic leader who can carry that message?
1: Okay, so my grandmother had an eighth grade reading. And it was in Italian, and it was a a dialect of Italian. But they'll make her dumb, man. She had a very high IQ. She was a very wise person. And uh, what did Lincoln say about the country? You know, the country has a good nose. The American people have a good nose. They can smell a rotting cadaver in their basement, is what Lincoln said. They can sit in the living room, and they can smell the cadaver rotting. And so they may not understand everything, but they can be led. Roosevelt understood that. Okay, we had an America First movement, 1938. We had Huey Long and Charles Lindbergh, and we had Father Coughlin, another maniac. Okay, and, <laughs> Roosevelt, and Roosevelt was like, okay, we, 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 I have to explain to the American people. And so he used to have these fireside chats. He would go directly to the American people, and he'd say, okay, listen, you know, we had a law that we couldn't sell them arms. So he came up with, he was uh, in one of his vacation homes, and he came up with the idea of lending it to them. You know, we'll lease it to them. And then he said, hey, you know, their house is on fire. You know, your neighbor's house is on fire. Wouldn't you run the garden hose over to your neighbor and let him use it to put his house on fire? He'll give it back to you at the end. Of course, it was impossible to do that, but the American people were led by him. Well, okay. that's
0: it, and I did. I did not mean to imply that if you don't have, uh, I simply stated a fact. It's not that that group, yeah. all, all that no, group, is it. not intelligent. No, there no, are many it, intelligent sir. people, I'm not, but
1: I'm not, I'm not saying uh, you're being condescending to anybody. I'm just saying to you that they they can be led. No, okay. no, that's
0: my whole point. You know, is they, you know, who is the leader and how do we get out of this? And well, I think I that's mean, that's the
1: problem. You, you don't have a you don't have a man or a woman at this current juncture in our. America's usually been fortunate, we usually get that leader. We had Lincoln in the Civil War, Roosevelt in the Depression in World War II. You need a transformational leader. Uh, Somebody, there's 144 million person new market. That's the non-voter. You need somebody that can open that market as an entrepreneur and go speak to those people and say, okay, hey, here's what's going great. Here's what we're doing a pretty poor job of. Here's how we could fix things. And oh, by the way, I haven't voted in 10 years, but here's the plan to fix it. And you know this is not about left or right, by the way. This is right or wrong. Here's the plan to fix it. And by the way, 80% of this you'll like, 20% of it you're not going to like. So don't be so binary and single issue. Look at the totality of it and accept and hold your nose on the things you don't like and vote for the totality of it. You know, Ed Koch had a great line. He used to go campaigning around New York. He said, okay, listen, I just told you all my beliefs. If you believe nine out of the 12 things that I'm saying, you should vote for me. If you believe 12 out of 12 things that I'm saying, you need a fucking psychiatrist. That's exactly what he would say to people. And he would walk off the stage people would get it. You can't find a politician, sir, that has the exact same fingerprint that you do. Not possible. But, but I'm telling you, that's the leadership we need. We need a transformational leader who's an entrepreneur or she's an entrepreneur. It's just, okay, this system's bro, It's not working. But this is how we can make it work better. And these are the technical and procedural improvements that we need to make to refresh this living document known as the Constitution. We haven't had an amendment. Your your phone went from iPhone 1 to iPhone 15. In, I don't know, you tell me, 15 years? But the Constitution has gone from no amendments. last amendment was in 93, procedural. Well, but, you know, that's you interesting. Know, I mean, come be-
0: on. Because, you know, you have the Federalist Society who somehow believed that uh, the Constitution was sacrosanct and nothing should ever change. And it's sort of fascinating how you translate that into uh, the modern world. And in some ways, it's like uh, uh, Christians. Uh, Somehow, the Bible is the inerrant word of God, which, of course, if you look at the work of a variety of scholars, is not uh, in many ways. It's made up narratives or uh, uh, mythologies. But uh, uh, it does have to be a living, breathing uh, document that responds to the needs at present.
1: 100%. Well, I mean, we, you know, listen, I mean, but we're not doing that. No, I, <laughs> I totally agree with you. Well, uh, this
0: is uh, actually a fascinating, and I have to tell you, uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, your knowledge and uh, giving I this- I hope I was too lit
1: up. I'm sorry if I overtalked talked you. I'm very passionate about this stuff. It just no, uh, you no. Know?
0: But uh, listen, I, I, I'm appreciative because not only did I learn a lot, but I, I actually I learned about you. And uh, uh, while I know you've had a tumultuous career in many ways, uh, uh, what you're saying is fundamentally, I believe, uh, correct and is quite powerful. And honestly, I don't think you get the credit uh,
1: for uh, who you are. Well, it's very sweet of you to say, but you see, you have to understand that's also a design. You know, when I had my press conference in the White House, I came off the podium. I got a call from a Republican operative who said, what are you, crazy? You can't talk like that from the White House. I said, what do you mean? You're talking, you're telling people the truth from the White House. You can't talk like that. You're going to get thrown out of this town. So they have to disfigure people like me. They... They always run with the Italian stereotypes, the Guidoism. I'm a Jersey Shore cast member. I mean, I've heard everything. I'm Tony Soprano on the huts, on the Potomac. They have to do that because they have to attack your personhood, so that they can discredit your ideas. You see what I mean? Well, this
0: is the nature of ad hominem attacks. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right? So you know what? Scaramouche. We can't have Scaramucci out there saying this shit. We gotta we gotta cheapen him. And we let, let's let fire him and see if that will shame him into silence, because we can't have him telling people the stuff that he's saying. It's not good for us. We, we've got this circuit going.
0: And well, they, this do, is it, the they si- do it to
1: everybody. They character assassinate everybody that's trying to solve the problem.
0: No, I think that's true. and And it's unfortunate because, you know, you talk to these people on the side and they know exactly what the truth is. And uh, that's what's frightening is that so many people would sell their souls instead of being honest.
1: Yet the American people, I believe, want honesty. I'm with you, sir. I'm with you. They want, they want honesty and they may have an eighth grade education, but if you're clear with them, you explain to them what's going on, like I just did. They're like, you know what? That is actually what's going on. Okay. How are we going to fix it? And they're like, you know what? Okay, I'm up for that. Let's give that a shit. This is not working. You know, so Kathy Hochul could have got destroyed here in New York, but Lee Zeldin wanted to be pro-Trump and pro-life. Well, the people don't like that. So he lost. But they don't like the crime. They don't like stepping over the people. They want to go back to the Bloomberg era. But, you know, they can't because they got woke Kathy Hochul and they got Stunad Lee Zeldin. So here we are.
0: Well... All we can say is that I think um, if we look out for the other, uh, I think uh, that should be our aspiration. And if we are able to come back uh, to the aspirations that this country was built on and truly believe that, uh, that will offer us hope. But I, And I totally agree with you. If we can have someone who can stimulate that 144 million to take action and actually believe in possibilities, then I think that's where our uh, solution lies. That's
1: the opportunity right there. Because you see, that's how you juke these guys. They've got their little duopoly running and they've, they've got all those people out of the system due to their apathy because they're cynics now. You bring them back in, it's a fighting force second to none.
0: And on that note, uh, let us all strive to bring back uh, that fighting force to make our world and uh, a better place. So, Anthony, thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been, and I've learned so much from you. And well, it's I appreciate really
1: being on. Thank you. I'm sorry I'm probably long winded, but you know, you're asking. You're Italian. You're, you're Italian. What well, I, I, yeah, I expected yeah, you get, that you get what you pay for, <laughs> Doty. Okay. What did you <laughs> yeah. expect was going to happen? Okay.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, yeah. Let's plan on uh, getting together. I'd love to uh, tell you a few more things that I'm doing that I think you might be interested in, and. Uh, uh, and maybe at some point we can get Andy in on this although he's a pain in the ass
1: sometimes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> please tell him I say hi. All right, and I appreciate and I appreciate you bringing me on. Thank you.
0: Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at Into the Magic Shop dot com.